If I could just shapeshift, <laughs> it would be much mm. easier. Wouldn't it? For so many things. On Sunday, it was so hot um, and I was trying to decide what to make for breakfast. And then I said, fuck it. Can we go to the beach? It's cooler there. So nice. we went to Southwold, sat on nice. the beach, read a book, had a lovely day. Perfect. I love Southwold. I forgot how nice that the, we were like right on the sort of harbour bit where it's like mm. you're almost in Warberswick. And I forgot mm. how nice that bit of beach is. And there yeah. were dogs everywhere and yeah. went for a little paddle. It was very fun. Gorgeous. Yeah. So do you ever like, you're doing a new thing and it's like the first time you're trying to do this thing. And so you kind of just blindly forge ahead with it rather than thinking the task out step by step and then end up with damp feet. Um, more often than I'd like to admit, yes. What did you do? <laughs> so I finished knitting the fish jumper. <laughs> I thought this was going to be about the beach. <laughs> no, this is nothing to do with the beach. <laughs> There's a thing in knitting where you like block your work and you soak the piece in water and then you like have to wring out all the water because obviously it's wool. Of and then you like pin it out nicely on mats and it makes it hold its like nice shape afterwards and it oh, okay, cool. all come together. So like if you, if you shrink something, you can make it wet and kind of reshape yeah, it like yeah. that kind of, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, and you're supposed to do it with new pieces and I never bothered blocking any of my work before, but I finished this jumper and I thought I should do it properly. I should block it. And I bought blocking mats and the pins that go with them and everything. Uh, and then obviously I did, got to the bit where I soaked it in water and realized I needed to wring it out. And the thing I'd read recommended you roll it up in a towel and then you like wring it out as much as you can over the sink mm -hmm. and then roll it up in a towel. Mm -hmm. So I did Just like that. hand washing generally. Yeah, um, yeah. But no wringer, yeah. And then step on it to kind of squish as much of the water out as possible. And I was just blindly going along and I did that and I didn't think to take my socks off and then suddenly realized I was just stood there on a towel or jumper wrapped in a towel with damp socks. Hmm. Hmm. And I question my life choices a little bit in that moment. <sighs> I understand though, because why would you think about, well, actually, probably most people probably just most would, people probably they? would think yeah. to take their socks <laughs> off in that situation. So Discworld Monthly, is that news we should talk about on the podcast? Yeah, it sounds like I it should we be. We're, we're in, it's in industry news. <laughs> so Discworld Monthly turned their profile picture and banner black, causing much speculation overnight. Yeah. And then announced that there would no longer be Discworld Monthly, but instead a, what was it? Better than a poke in the eye. Better than a poke in the eye. Referencing something that Terry Pratchett once said about the organisation, which was Discworld Monthly, better than a poke in the eye with a blunt stick. Yeah. Which I agree, I would uh, use as a tagline yeah. forever had anyone said that about me. <laughs> but anyway, they're now going to be a more broadly... Fantasy fiction. Yeah, comedy kind of thing. So we got, uh, they're going to expand their scope to cover Robert Rankin and Jasper Ford and those lot. Yeah, th those lot. Those the Benaradoviches of this world. Mm -hmm. I haven't got any more nerdy or Discworldy news. So how about you? I read some new books over the last couple of weeks. I gave up on my whole big reread thing. So what, what have you been reading instead? Uh, I read A Closed and Common Orbit, which is uh, the follow-up to A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. It's been Ooh. out for ages. I just never got around to picking it up. Okay. Um, there's a third one now as well, which I'll have to go and get at some point. Um, but it was really lovely. I loved it. I love Becky Chambers. Good. Did you read A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet? <sighs> I didn't. I will at some point. You, you'll enjoy it. I think yeah. you really will. And A Closed and Common Orbit is really lovely. She manages to make... I don't want to spoil what the book's about because it would spoil A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, but she manages to take an experience that literally no one reading the book could ex have experienced in any way and make it seem incredibly familiar and relatable. Ooh. It's really we cleverly like done. you can do that. Yeah. And I just finished this morning uh, The Priory of the Orange Tree, 
uh, by, I can't remember the author's name now. Yeah, you told me you were reading this. Yeah. yeah. I've forgotten as well. It's cool. <laughs> it's a big fancy one. I've been seeing it all over BookTok, but unlike like Fourth Wing, I've been seeing nothing but positive things about it on BookTok. And it's really great, huge, epic, high fantasy. There's dragons, there's sapphic romance, courting, intrigue. Do you know, weirdly, I've not ended up on BookTok very much. Um, on the podcast account, <laughs> I, I obviously get quite a lot of that on the algorithm, but on mine, I don't, I don't get much BookTok. Did you say I, there was another one that seems to be controversial? That was the one our friend read recently, uh, The Fourth Wing, which is ah. like some people really love, some people have kind of written off as incredibly tropey. I will say Prior of the Orange Tree, like the opening felt super, super tropey. Like, you know, oh no, I am from this land and this person is clearly from this land and the customs and ways are different and it's the night before the choosing. I don't think tropes are always bad, though. No, I don't at all. Mm. It's it's fun. Like it, it made me laugh. It didn't put me mm. off reading it, and it's yeah. fun well, it's how it goes into tropes. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's fun how it goes into tropes and it plays with them. And yeah. uh, women don't get casually sexually assaulted every other page, which uh, weird for a high fantasy <laughs> book for me is a big thumbs up. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> One of one of the many reasons I do prefer sci-fi to fantasy usually. I mean, it's not like it's non-existent, but there are significantly less of it in sci-fi. There's also significantly less women overall in sci-fi. I think that's why there's so much less sexual, sexual assault. It's partly that, yeah. Not yeah. Lie, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell you what, though, we're reading a fantasy book that also doesn't have sexual assault and does have more than one woman. Do they talk to each other about something no. other than a man? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I never bother looking up the Bechdel test thing in these, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I love Discworld, but uh, I mean, the Mon Monstrous Regiment definitely passed the Bechdel test. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. It has been quite a long week, but I'm feeling significantly more awake than I thought I would. I expect at about 10 o'clock I will stop feeling so good about life, at which point I will remember I haven't had dinner. Yes, quite possibly. I've got leftover curry and chips to have for dinner. Ooh. Nice. Very excited about that. Leftover chips. Can you reheat chips and have oh, no, them be the, good? I have oven chips and then I have ah, leftover curry. Good, good, good. Yeah, I don't think chips really reheat well. Mm. I think yeah. you've got to accept chips as they come or not at all. And I think there's a real truth in that. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me. Do you want to make a podcast? <laughs> yeah, let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make Ye Frat, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part two of our discussion of Going Postal. It's going. It's gone. The post. It went. The post. It went places. It went places. <gasps> Exciting. Uh, this section covers chapters five through nine, inclusive of the book. Note on spoilers before we crack on. We are a spoiler light podcast. Obviously, heavy spoilers abound for the going postal. Uh, however, we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series and we're saving any and all discussion of the Shepherd's Crown until we get there. So you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. At a pace so irresponsible, you'll need a nice bath at the end. Some follow-up bits. Some follow-up. Um, I'm going to start with mine. Mm -hmm. From the Discord, PD. Friend of the show, friend of the pod, regular correspondent, has correctly reminded us, as somebody probably him he did during Feet of Clay, it's Golem, not Gollum. Yep. Yes, yeah, I'll try. Uh, <laughs> Same. He also, however, said that um, he was looking forward to us pointing out Vetinari going full Jeeves, especially when he said, 
one must always consider the psychology of the individual, which is the basis of most of G's plans, which I see to a point. However, I would like to say I feel like Mr. Pump went full Jeeves with much more aplomb in this part uh, when he said, I did in fact try to clean your suit with spot remover, sir, but since it was effectively just one large spot, it removed the whole suit. <laughs> and I'm sorry, sir, I assumed that dusters had been saved for your suit. <laughs> that felt rather Jeeves. That felt a lot more Jeevesian to me. Uh, a couple of other bits of follow-up. We were talking about where Glom of Knit had turned up before. There's a mm. conversation between Carrot and Vimes about the post office in Men at Arms. Thank you, Martin, on Twitter. Excellent. Uh, on the A Man's Not Dead While His Name's Still Spoken, uh, Loxair on Discord, whose nickname we've been pronouncing wrong, I hope we got it right now, pointed out that one of the best examples of that is Anasir. Excuse me? The uh, The guy who sold bad copper. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yay. Which which I love, because he doesn't have a bit of Danisir in it. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but... Did I send you something about that the other day? Today? Yes, you did. Someone made it out, out of shortbread. Oh, that's the right. The tablet with the complaints. <laughs> Excellent. I would kind of used you as an external filing cabinet for some of this stuff. Like, I just like, ha, that's amazing. Send to Joanna, forget. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I'll be a spare TikTok filing cabinet. That's all you want from me. Acronyms. Some acronym submissions from Discord. Luxair suggested for Clatch. Kiss, lick, and touch a homie. For that, you do have to spell cha with a ch, but I'll allow it. <laughs> uh, a few submissions for Lanka from PD. Love and near carnal romantic experiences. Near carnal, um, good. <laughs> oh, I've written one of these down wrong. Uh, Something about late after naughty excesses, but I've clearly missed out a couple of letters there. That was me, not the listener. Mellowin suggested love across nations, counties, rivers, everlasting, which is very oh, sweet. Oh, well, that's sweet. There we go. We'll go with that one. Scunned. We've got swiftly kicked up and down. Again, you've got a spell. Beautiful. Romantic. And with N. Uh, but we'll allow it because I didn't come up with any. Francine, would you like to tell us what happened previously on Going Postal? Certainly. Previously on Going Postal. Albert Spangler dies. Moist von Litvig lives, much to his surprise. The career criminal is given a second chance. He is to take the post of postmaster, a role with a fatality rate nearly as high as that of the gallows and with a much longer drop. His new colleagues don't fill him with confidence. Old coot, grote and unsettling Stanley keep the lanterns lit but can't manage much else. Moist sets about winning them and the rest of the city over. Meanwhile, the Grand Trunk's reprehensible representatives annoy Vetnari more than even Moist could manage, and the patrician is left with a smoking gnu on the table. <gasps> oh. <gasps> da -da -da. Uh, so what happened this time in this very long section? Yeah, quite a lot, because it's not just a long section, but it's a long section with a lot of events, and I'll talk about the pace of this section uh, a bit later. But yeah, so in this section... In Chapter 5, Stanley polishes his pins while Grope mutters. Meanwhile, Crispin knocks at Reacher's. He's being spied on and he's fearing an audit after their abuse of the Grand Trunk. Crispin gives guilt to the ledger and Igor gets horsefry home before sending a pigeon to Grail. Moist makes a visit to the coachyard and spots a clax tower on the post office roof. He tries to get up there, but letters begin to fall. A mail slide takes him and he hallucinates the past post office and works out what happened to the last postmaster. The letters speak until Pump pulls him out. Some old men come to see Moist and send him on his walk. He delivers the letter and passes the ultimate test to become postmaster, complete with golden hat. 
The old men fight over the relevance of the post, but as Moist dons the hat, letters begin to fall and the writing's on the wall. In chapter six, Moist remembers last night the old men he hired and the promises he made. In his new gold suit, he addresses the postman. Grope shows Moist the sorting engine, the downfall of the old post office. As the post starts to move, Moist has an idea about stamps and sends pump for supplies. The postmen struggle on their rounds and Moist calls at the Gollum Trust for assistance and Gamarad walks the walk and shares his history in the Gollum's walk out. In chapter seven, Moist visits Teemer and Spools and invents perforation and postage stamps. The mail deliveries have caused a rumpus and there's a lady in the office for Moist. In an interview for the Ankmore Pork Times, Moist shows Saccharissa's stamps and she suggests a history lesson. Moist is off to see the wizard. After being strapped into a contraption and experiencing flabber, he meets Professor Pelk, learns he's an avatar and chats to the posthumous professor. Early in the morning, Moist stands in front of the patrician who's enjoying the newspaper. Horsefry, meanwhile, is apparently dead. Moist offers a mail run to Stolat, and as the post bustles, he mounts Boris without a saddle, asks the door out, and rides for the plains. In chapter 7a, I love that, <laughs> Moist makes it to Stolat, delivers the mail, has a bath, and meets the mayor. He returns to the city to see queues, new posts, new hires, and Miss McAlariat. Headline screams, Stanley gets promoted, Moist forges a dinner reservation and gets a gnote from the gnu. <laughs> Meanwhile... Sorry. <laughs> I'm really proud of that. Uh, meanwhile, Grile knocks at Gilt's door. He'll be dealing with the problem at the dry old post office. In Chapter 9, Moist tells the coachman a story and gets ready for a date. He meets Adora at the drum and learns of her history with the trunk. At the post office, Stanley looks at stamps, something screams, a pigeon drops, flames blossom, and Stanley has a moment. <sighs> Moist and Adora enjoy dinner at the Happy Liver, and when Reacher Gilt enters, Moist meets a kindred spirit. But suddenly, he smells burning. <gasps> Yeah, sorry, that was a bit long. No, oh, no, it's good. It's a, it's a, there's a lot. There's a as, lot, Joanna. As the seamstress said to the bishop. Ex yes. <laughs> so, Quite helicopter so. and loincloth watch. Mm. Uh, I feel like a fig leaf with wings on could actually do double duty there. Absolutely. That is we a, need to talk about fig leaves and wings at some point, by the way. I suppose we'll save that for next week because there's too much in this one. But we, Yes, we'll discuss There's a foreshadow. Yeah, <laughs> foreshadowing for next week. Did you look at the same bit of research that I did about? I expect uh, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. But I feel like a honourable helicopter mention also goes to Flabber. The moment when everything went back to not being stretched, I feel like that's a bit of a metaphysical mm. helicopter. Yep. No, love that. Uh, uh, also, some whirling letters too. Yeah, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. But yeah, fig leaf with wings on, double Absolutely. duty, elasticated for your comfort. <laughs> Also, just on other bits we keep track on, uh, the librarian is not explained. Yeah. Moist Doesn't need it. Just it's fine. Don't worry it. about it. Yeah. We're in a it's interesting, actually, because quite a lot is explained. Yeah. But no, that one's just left to it. Hmm. Quotes. Quotes. I believe uh, you're first. Yeah, mine is first. The words came like a gale, whirling the envelopes in the sparkling light, shaking the building to its foundations. Deliver us. Which I feel like is a very, a, a very deep punal play on words, which you don't get very often, do you? Uh, uh, yeah. You know, de deliver. Hmm. Deliver. Hmm. Deliver us. Not unto temptation. Sorry. Yeah. But from evil. And if possible, uh, to Dolly Sisters. Thank you. Yes, lovely. <laughs> How about yours? As, as I went long last week, I thought I'd go a bit shorter. Snook not cocked. <laughs> Was there ever a better sentence in the English language? I don't actually know where cocking a snook comes from, etymologically. No. I uh, I didn't get time to look it up. I've always thought of cocking a snook as somehow being somewhat nasal, I think, 
Snook mm. sounds like it could be like a beak or something. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Sort of like turning your nose away or thumbing your nose. Which Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. All right. Explain it to us, listeners. Please. Yeah. If if you're aware of, of how snooks are cocked, if how one cocks one snook. Answers in a headline. Thank you. Like it's, it's a cousin to, you know, just bite thy thumb, I guess. Yeah. My brain's gone on a tangent already. This bodes well. Right, let's talk Moist. about characters. Moist. <laughs> Everyone's favourite Von Litvig. Certainly mine. He gets his golden suit and his golden hat. Finally, he has his costume. He the golden does. hat, by the way, I, 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 I may have missed it, but did the pigeon wings get reinforced? Because I was a bit concerned about that. I'm not entirely sure, but I do hope so. Possibly, but, you know, by uh, avatar purposes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's probably fine. But I like this idea of the hat, the suit and the hat allowing him to, like, hide in plain sight. Yes. Because no one's going to be looking at his face and going, Oi, hang on, you. It is the natural conclusion to high-vis in a clipboard. Yes, a gold suit and hat. <laughs> but if you compare it to Reach a Guilt's method of hiding in plain sight, there's these cousins mm. to them, like they're opposite sides of a coin. Yes, and of course, interesting, because uh, guilt meaning covered in gold. Yes, absolutely. The gold hat thing as well reminded me of, as a little. It, it's a little snippet of a fake poem. Ooh. It's uh, the epigraph on the like pa- front page of The Great Gatsby. Okay. There's uh, a little bit of a poem. Then wear the gold hat, if that will move her. If you can bounce high, bounce for her too. Till she cry, lover, gold-hatted, high-bouncing lover, I must have you. Oh. Uh, which is attributed to Thomas Bark Dinvilliers, who, which was another of Fitzgerald pen names. He actually, he wrote the thing. Cool. And obviously you can see how it works for the great Gatsby, but I feel like there's there's something of it in here in the gold hat and the bouncing high. Definitely. Except it's not just one person. None of that works on Adora. He's doing that so everyone else loves him. Yes. And it gives you another side of the uh, two sides of the coin thing with Reacher Gilt, doesn't it, as well? Because obviously Reacher Gilt's famous party is very, I'd say, Gatsby-coded at least. Yeah, there's definitely a, a Gatsby flavour to those. Mm. The trop liver and the troll. Were you there? I was, but I can't tell you about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm really enjoying the way Moist is like... He's slowly getting redeemed without being even slightly willing to accept that he's going through a redemption arc. Mm. It's very like, I can quit anytime I want. But then there's moments like uh, he has the idea about the stamps, so he sends someone out to get Mr. Robinson's box Mm. for the sake of the post office, and he doesn't have a second thought about it. He grabs it and he starts doing it. Yeah. Redemption Addict is an excellent something name. Yeah. Coming back to that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, he's he, he's just putting his skills to good use. But at the same time, I don't know, it's kind of a half redemption arc, isn't it? Because he's doing good things, but all the while very much keeping in mind that it's he profitable. Can, yeah, he can make something out of this. He literally, mm. you know, manages to create a new form of currency without really meaning to, but immediately starts thinking about the extent of it. Absolutely. He's becoming good, but his motivations haven't become good yet. Yes. And waiting to see if they line up. But I love when he starts creating all the bustle in the post office, mm. the pace of the book skyrockets. Mm. Like suddenly everything in the book is like steaming ahead right up to Boris taking off for the planes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, a, you know, from from the moment the hat goes on his head, which is always wonderful, isn't it? We do like hats, don't we, on this podcast? We like We like a symbolic hat. 
Speaking as two hats, yes, I'm a big fan of a symbolic hat. <laughs> you wear the hats for both of us, but we both like them. <laughs> but yeah, we, we talk so many times, don't we, about how a hat can make a character in these books. Absolutely. And that this one, it definitely has the same, you know, fate-changing power as the, the wizard hat that Rincewind did not want to have. <laughs> no one wants the wizard's hat. Except at one no. point, everyone does. Yes. This hat is a little cursed as well as winged, I suppose, isn't it? We'll get With that. an extra ed. Yeah. What else can we add ed on to, by the way? We'll try yeah. it as we go along. Let's see if we can do that. Because <laughs> Cursed, winged, and something ed. Vanished. Mm, nice. Love that. It's a word that's on the page in front of me. Um, and he's he's thinking back on his cons. There's a great bit when he gets into Stolat and he's thinking about, you know, the time he spent there before passing tricks. Not so much for money as out of a permanent fascination with human deviousness and gullibility. Yes. There's a sense in everything he does. There's no, like, retirement plan. There's no one last big score and I'll stop forever. It's all about, I'm going to keep poking stuff to see what happens. Yeah. Each day is a new story. This isn't a yeah a, a long-term arc. We do learn a bit more about his background than I'd remembered, actually. The fact that his parents died, got sent to school, got bullied. Yeah, it's literally like a, a three-sentence backstory and that's it. Yeah. We never uh, see it from his perspective. No, but you can kind of, you, you can vaguely fill in the gaps, can't you? Like learning how to do all this weird shit at boarding school. Very, yeah. Mm. Discovering like how to not get bullied by being this sort of person instead. Yeah. Or wanting um, never to be bullied again and so putting the the mask on every day. Yeah. Oh, getting deep. Getting too deep. I love when he meets the uh, Joe Camels, the, the current mayor of Stolat, and who says to him, you know, oh, you're a man who wants to be up and doing, a man full of vim. I love, love any use of the word vim. Vim and vigour. Vim and vigour. You're a man after my own heart, you are. And he's decided to completely see himself in Moist, who is... Not he's not totally wrong, but they definitely mm. come at wants to be up and doing from very different angles. Yeah, he wants to be moving out of some kind of uh, internal drive mechanism that isn't entirely comfortable. It's not like a yeah, and and wants to as be moving so he doesn't get caught. Yes, it's not this wholesome thing that the mayor has going for him. But if you sort of compare like the way he's seeing himself, but it's not quite himself in moist, and then. Moist seeing a bit of himself in Reacher when mm. he finally meets him. Yeah. I enjoyed his little um, parallel in the forgery when he was talking about forging Reacher Gilt's signature, just saying that, uh, here it is, um, there was something in people's heads that spotted some little detail that wasn't quite right, but at the same time would fill in details that had been merely suggested by a few careful strokes. Attitude, expectation and presentation were everything. That whole... Ding. It's beautiful, that whole scene where he's forging it and and this is what it probably is like, but this is what a layperson would think it is like. Mm. The handwriting. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <sighs> Gets a bit 3D chess with it. So quickly, Boris, a hero to all of us. Oh, yep, yep, absolutely. A trampler, a snaffler, a scraper, and he'll horlock if he can get away with it. He wanted to bite the horizon. I want that on a poster. I do. It's beautiful. <laughs> Seize the day. Bite the horizon. <laughs> Again, I think a... that might be the only thing that finally gives me ambition. <laughs> Bite the horizon, Francis. Bite the horizon. 
fuck me, I'm going to have to get good at cross-stitch and do that one, aren't I? <laughs> and trample and eat people. About- <laughs> Thank you, Ella, for our cross-stitches, by the way. A lovely listener sent us Oh, yeah, amazing. Did we, like, did we say that? We must have said that. If not, so- very sorry and thank you, yes. Sorry, as I was thinking of cross-stitch. Anyway, love, again, kindred spirit with Moist, though. Like Moist yeah, is a bite the horizon kind of guy, isn't he? He does want to run. He does want to run. He's not quite so into the um, trampling and eating people. As far as I remember, at no point in this book does Moist trample or eat anyone. No. But, you know, we don't see everything. No, no, yeah. Uh, listeners, feel free to tell us where we went wrong there. Yeah, fill uh, in the <laughs> Stanley. Stanley's having a day, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Right at the opening in this section, there's just a really beautiful line when he's looking through his pins. He might smell faintly of cheese and have athlete's foot atten- uh, extending to the knee. But right now, Stanley soared through glittering skies on wings of silver. Yeah, it's lovely. That's a useful moment. And such a poetic and, you know, such a, a, a involving way of describing this hobby that he then sheds very quickly a bit later. Yeah. That's amazing. I also love his mug. Uh, be mad, it helps. Yeah, I, I, I would like that. <laughs> I do like when Hobson of the livery stable delivers Boris... He, and says, ah, oh, so he didn't want this, did he? And mm. is repeating Moist's words verbatim. I am assuming that is because Stanley went to Hobson and said exactly what Moist said, word oh, for yeah. word, very literally in deadpan. I think absolutely that's what happened, yeah. And uh, I just quite enjoy imagining that little scene. Hobson, by the way, friend of the pod, again, can't remember which episode, but has definitely come up before and possibly uh, in some truth. kind of obscure reference. The truth, it was uh, quite recent, wasn't it? Okay. Uh, well, there's well Hobson's me. livery stable gets introduced in the truth because it's mm-hmm. sort of implied it's like a multi-story car park. It's the deep bone. That's that one. Yeah. There we go. Um, but yeah, Stanley's immediate adoration of the stamps when he says to Moist, it's like being there when they invented the first pin. Mm, yeah, <laughs> he knows good thing when he sees it, and apparently, apparently that's quite accurate. Apparently, stamp collectors came very quickly after the first stamps. There's, there's something about them. It's, it's something compulsive, and there's all this uniqueness, and mm. I guess this idea of something having been somewhere. Yeah, I wonder what evolutionary drive is behind us collecting things. Is it, is, Magpie. Is, I know mag- we're not magpies, directly yeah. descended from magpies, <laughs> but it's, it's that it's a bit of a magpieish urge, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And I like the little line about putting away childish pins. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and then Groat. Good old Groat. Gosh, Love now he, he has had some, if not character, then certainly career development in this section. Yeah. Got to act as postmaster. Had a little uh, aneurysm while he accepted that. And got to wear the hat. I'd got to wear, well, yeah, it's got to wear the hat. Probably not a great idea, as it turns out. But well, no, not entirely. I love that same opening bit when Stanley's looking at his pins and Groat is doing his extended, inane muttering. Like it's quite mm. expositional for the reader. It works yes. really well. But at the same time, like you can imagine, it's just a really comforting background hum for Stanley. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I've I've got this app uh, called uh, My Noise, I think it is, mm-hmm. and it has like a bunch of different white noises you can pick. So you've got like walk in the rain, aeroplane noise is one of them. And I think, uh, yeah, old man muttered exposition would be a really good addition to it. I wonder if I could like record a extended old man muttering exp- exposition. 
A guided meditation. You are sitting in a smelly cellar. <laughs> You've got a brand new sack of pins. There's a great bit when he's trying to explain why he doesn't understand geometry. And he says, I was raised in the post office, born in the sorting room, weighed on the official scales. And I like to think that's part of the context for him caring for Stanley so much. Mm. Because to him, it is completely normal to be raised in the post office. I don't think he thinks of him as a son. No, but he says it takes a village to raise kind of thing. And he's yeah. the only person who've been looking after him for a while yeah yeah i think there's a nice connection there yeah i'd completely forgotten that that's what new pie meant <laughs> it's one i was of my trying favorite. to remember i was like is that a what's that a reference and it might still be it might still be a reference to something i was like oh that's tip tip of the brain type stuff it's like oh right yeah fucking yeah because it sounds stupid. like it was some big political move thing yeah it sounds yeah. it sounds like a labor slogan it does but the the new pie just being that yeah, math's so bad it broke the universe is a lovely twist there. <laughs> it is a beautiful twist. Um, Groat's reaction when he realises that Moist can hear the letters too. Mm. And he's he's crying. He's so glad. He's so sure that Moist is this, this prophesied postmaster. He says, they're alive, they're alive. Not like people, but like ships are alive. Yeah, that was beautiful. And it comes after this this build-up where he's been kind of not not hysterically but fervently with religious zeal kind of guiding him through this process to become to become yeah. the postmaster and he's sure he's sure of it and but underneath that surety there is obviously got to be this layer of doubt hasn't there and so this when he's crying now is the relief yeah not not only am i not imagining all this because you know stanley being the only other witness isn't ideal but we've got somebody to lead this ship so rich gill rich gill our cartoon villain yeah spectacular villain see okay so remember way back when we talked about the tv adaptation of color of magic mm. and how it was really weird that they turned Triman into like a mustache twirling villain because in the mm. color of, in like fantastic he's not he's like one of those gray boring bureaucratic villains yeah like this is what I, I know. It's not Tim Curry in the Going Postal adaptation. I can't remember who plays Reacher in it. They are fantastic, uh, but it's such a Tim Curry character. It's very Tim Curry, yeah, absolutely. Especially because there's so much Long John Silver about it, and Tim Curry played Long John Silver in Muppet Treasure Island. One of my ah, yes, that's his greatest role. His greatest role is that one clip from the old video game where he says, "I'm going to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism, space." <laughs> Uh, which I will link to in the show notes for those who aren't familiar with it. I can't remember the name of the game now. I'm sure someone's going to uh, tweet me as they're listening. Yeah, absolutely. The bit where Moist meets Reacher. Oh, it was such a good moment. And shakes his hand. It's beautiful, isn't it? He realised he was. It was the firm handshake of an honest man. Yeah. Was it, he says he was in the presence of a master. If Moist was any judge at all, the man in front of him was the biggest fraud he'd ever met, and he advertised it. One thing I noticed actually as well is that he's he's this big cartoonish villainous presence in the book. We don't actually spend much time with him at all. There's like in the first section it was one scene. In this section I think it's only three scenes total. That's the case with almost all of Pratchett's villains, isn't it? And sometimes we get uh, a bit more from their point of view. Uh, thinking of like same men at arms, we spend quite a lot of time in De Earth's head. Well, that's true actually, because yes, um, a big part of that was how mad he was, wasn't it? Yeah, I think often in Pratchett, in Discworld books, when we're not spending a lot of time in the villain's point of view, it's because 
there's mystery built around the villain here, but like Rachel gets the bad guy. Yeah. And you, you kind of don't need to see it from his perspective. No, do you? Not because at all. as as Moist realizes, he's just wearing it on his sleeve. Absolutely. I like Crispin being shocked that Gilt's got an Igor and Gilt having an Igor is like another handy shorthand for the viewer the reader. Like, this must not yeah. be a good guy. He's got an Igor. Yes. But from Crispin Horsefry's point of view, it just means, oh, he's rich. Yeah. And obviously, like, you know, hashtag not all eagles, because there's there's eagles working in the watch and at the Lady Civil Free Hospital. But if an eagle is is doing butlerish type duties, you can be sure that whoever they're working for is probably not eccentric. He, they're eccentric in a, you know, in a, how do you say, uh, evil way. Uh, yeah. yeah that's <laughs> possibly not morally sound, old chap. <laughs> and of course, the 12.5% parrot. Yes. Which I was very pleased I worked out that joke before I read an annotation about it in Fathom Wiki. A piece of eight, anyway. Yes. Uh, it's an eighth of a hundred. The, the whole, he told them what he was and they laughed and loved him for it is very, I mean, obviously there have been villains like this through history, but I feel mm. is uncomfortably representative of modern politics as well. Uh, Johnson and Trump being two obvious examples. Well, especially as, and this is remarkably prescient, but the fact that Gilt is working out of the Tump Tower. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I suppose this is the time where, where Donald Trump was was mm. in his big golden Trump Tower. This is pre-presidency. Different flavour of villain, just bad capitalism then. Yeah. Uh, t- tump, does Tump mean like Castle or Hills? I think Tump means Hill as well, doesn't it? So it's a nice yeah, little it double one. Yeah, love that. I also love uh, the little paragraph about Gilt's parties and was it true about the chip chop liver? Were you there? And how like, yeah. but it, how it kind of works yeah. with Grope's bit, the, the quote oh, yeah. I read it last week. You should have should been have there. Seen, you sir. should have seen it. <laughs> and another vaguely related bit that's just in this area was that um, when Moist realising all of this, he says, all of this came in an instant, one bolt of understanding and the glint of an eye, but something ran in front of it as fast as a little fish ahead of a shark. Uh, and it's just another beautiful bit of practice just describing thoughts so well. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of other bits in the book about like second thoughts, quickly stopping him, stuff like that. But it's 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 kind of a, you know, building on the the stuff he started in the last few books. Or not building yeah. on it, continuing it, because obviously Tiffany's probably the apex of these thoughts. But yeah. yeah, but using it in different contexts other than just the witchy context. Yeah. It's really great. Really cool. Let's go to uh, Horse Fry. Horse Fry. F5. Horse Fry. F5 in the chat to pay respects. Immediately. He died the way he lived. Panicked. Yes, absolutely. May I take your highly noticeable long hooded cloak, sir? Tying Eagle and uh, Horse Fry together. <laughs> Which I just thought was a wonderful uh, last hurrah for Crispin Horse Fry's complete and utter inability to be a good criminal. I also like when he shut himself into the room full of shadows and candlelight and the door closed behind him into its felt frame. It was a wonderful little bit of atmosphere building there and reminded me again of, of Men at Arms and the shadowy rooms full of people and everything. It's just, it's just yeah. There's lots, lots of callbacks here, I feel. A lot of callbacks. Um, so, Mr. Pump. Mr. Pump. Mr. Our Pump. Our friend. Our friend. Gets an, an, an angry moment. Mm. When Moist says, you've got added mumbo jumbo and pumps, the red fire rose behind Pump's eyes as he turned to stare at Moist. Mm. Um, which ties in sort of, I think, quite neatly with uh, Adora explaining the days off thing. 
to Moist slightly later on, and she says part of it is it's a way to show they're not a hammer. Yes. I also thought it was quite, it was quite interesting that um, he he reacted not not badly exactly, but certainly uh, sharply, I'd say, for a golem to uh, Moist saying some, something like it's it's just words, it's just letters and words. Um, and it, it doesn't need to be spelled out for us, so to speak. But um, yeah. a, go- a golem, of course, is, is clay with words. The, the yeah. words on paper words in his head, everything. that's what he is. Yeah. <laughs> is it the words in the head and the words in the heart? Mm. Yeah. Or uh, something like that. Something like re- that, yeah. I wish, I had, I wish I'd had time to reread Feet of Clay before reading this. Yeah, I think I'm not going to be rereading any of the Discworlds as we go along. It's going to get too, too much. <laughs> yeah, no, my brain can't actually take all of that in. <laughs> Um, and we meet Angamarad. Oh, he's a much older friend. Much older friends. Incredible description. Mm. His eyes, unlike the furnace glow of those other golems, burned a deep ruby red. He looked old, one that he felt old. The chill of time radiated off him. I know. Like a deep ruby red I love as well, because it's like, it's like a red di- giant. It's like a dying star yeah. instead of a, a full old... Yeah, that's oh, very cool. What I love as well is um, the book is like, rushing through the plot and bustle at this mm. point and when Angamarad's introduced it take, it stops and has a calm moment mm. Mm. it feels like there's this calm softness around that bit before the bustle starts again yeah as absolutely. everyone like stops and takes in his history and the message he's carrying and how how long he's been a postman yeah the way that Lance sort of realized it would be an honor to work with him yeah absolutely ah oh, that that Obviously, we do have to mention the the um the much older glom of knit. Yes. Uh, neither deluge nor ice storm nor the black silence of the nether hills shall stay these messengers about their secret business. And then scrawled in chalk on the wall, I assume. Do not ask us about saber-toothed tigers, tar pits, big green things with teeth, or the goddess Xol. Well, now I want to see the goddess Xol meet Mrs. Cake. Do not ask. This is literally the next note in here, and I've got to mention it. The bloody cohorts all gleaming in Asia and Azure and Gold. Did you have that anywhere? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Adora says that when the golems go out, golems go out, and they're Mm. they're painted in their blue and gold uniforms. Yeah, yeah. It's from Lord George Gordon Byron. Also from Monstrous Regiment. (laughs) It is also from Monstrous Regiment, but the original quote is from Lord George Gordon Byron. Uh, His poem, "The Destruction of Fuck." I've never tried to say this out loud. Not one of his better poems. <laughs> Destruction of Sennacherib. Uh-huh. Sennacherib? I, yeah. I know the Sennacherib poem. Sennacherib sounds right. Yeah. I've just not tried to say the title out loud before. Um, the Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, very bleak little poem. I'll link to it in the show notes. It was a monstrous regiment, wasn't it? I didn't make that up. There is... Yeah, because they're trying to remember and it's Tumpty Tum. I'm 90% yeah. sure it's Monsters Regiment. And then, yeah, Adora's the one who said that, and that leads us on nicely too. Adora, who who explains to Moist near the end of the section about Angamarad that he's waiting for the whole universe to come around so he can deliver this message he's carrying, which is mm. its own little beautiful thing. And when she brings in the golems, Moist notices she's different when she speaks to them. There was actual tenderness in her voice. Yeah, this is what she gives a fuck about. Yeah. I like on the same page as well. She also is explaining a bit more of the watch to uh, Moist and on Vimes, the most cynical bastard that walks under the sun. Yes, quite, Which is quite, fair. quite a fair, quite a thing to say from uh, from Adora. From Adora. <laughs> An expert on the matter, one might say. 
Exactly so. We get a bit more backstory on Adora as well, of course. And her family, uh, Robert Dearhart, her father who created the Grand mm. Trunk and the Clax before having it ripped out from under him by dickheads. Yeah. And you realise quite how recent all of this is as well. Like her, her brother only died three months ago and it wasn't that it wasn't that long ago till, uh, since they were, you know, wealthy and... She had a pony that she used to watch run around. I think it was only a month ago. The prologue where the mm. brother dies is, is one month before the events start. Okay. So, yeah, it's all so recent. It's mm. so close. It's so fresh. Her visceral rage. Mm. And I love that before that, Moist hasn't really thought about the Grand Trunk. Like, he, he doesn't know Reacher. He's he's obviously vaguely aware of him because he stole the notepaper and mm. stuff. But he hasn't. he clearly hasn't thought about them as a player in this game. Not more than just a, this is, you know, an, another huge enterprise within the city that I'm just going to bother in the same way that I'm bothering everybody else, yeah. Yeah, he thinks it's all just part of the silliness until uh, Adora points out that they're not going to be happy with him. Not like it. They get all murdery. They don't care which knife they use. I also think it's very sweet how much all the golems, the golems care about Adora. Mm. And and Mr. Pump sort of explains, you know, we'd like to see her happy. And Gamarad said she reminded him of Layla, the volcano goddess, who smokes all the time because the god of rain has rained on her lava. It is a, a, one of the few gender tropes I do enjoy, actually, is large, strong beings being overly protective of their keeper, who is generally yes. <laughs> a much smaller woman. <laughs> Often no, an is. old woman. <laughs> It is a very sweet little trope. Um, I also I noticed during the day that again, because so much of the book is from Moist's point of view, like we only see Adora through his eyes, really. Mm. And sometimes in certain books, you know, that would get me on my feminist high horse. That would bug me, but I really don't mind it here because he is so unpresumptive about her. Yeah, he's uh, describing her. Just yeah, like obviously fancies the pants off her. Yeah, but also is fully aware that there's nothing he can do to really trick or charm her. Yeah. And, you know, as, as well as fancying the pants off her, he's thinking stuff like, I want to see her take on life with the enthusiasm she's smoking a cigarette. Yeah. Bloody stupid Johnson and his sorting engine. Bloody stupid. He is bloody stupid. Began life The engine began life as an organ before becoming a male sorter. So in, in his defence, it, it, it wasn't meant to fuck up the post office, just a... Uh church well no i don't <laughs> think he is a malevolent entity just a chaos entity true true yes yeah, chaotic true. neutral yeah <laughs> but it's hard to describe anyone as neutral when he has this much effect on everything but yes you're quite right <laughs> well we could go into a whole thing about morality and whether intent or outcome matters more but we've got a whole podcast to get through yes I do like this idea, though, of uh, this enforcement of speed and efficiency from the postmaster creating the downfall. Mm. I think yeah, that's definitely. not a unique thing for... Uh, it kind of comes on from your corporate greed thing last week as well. It's not a unique thing for Pratchett to have a point of view on. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And then uh, my other girlfriend, Sakharissa Cripslock. Oh, yes, good old Sakharissa. Back she is. Happily married now. Congrats to her, but still Miss Cripslock. Of course. I am very grateful that the description stayed away from her chest. Yes, well done. Well done, Mr. Pratchett. Well done, Terry Pratchett. <laughs> And I love the the callback to fracker, fracar versus rumpus. Did yes. we ever settle on well, how to say fracar? <laughs> uh, no, but I don't care. That's fine. And I like, it how you will. I like how much of her character growth we've seen here from just she was learning how to be a reporter to she is 
terrifyingly dangerous with her pen. Yes. Vetinari's little description later about how it's very unfair that she just writes down exactly what he says and it seems like cheating somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and then we meet uh, Ladislav Pelk, prehumus professor of morbid bibliomancy. We love him. We love him. His office made of books and his false beard. What a man. Uh, named after a real person. Oh, is he? Yeah. In 2002, a flood destroyed um, a theatre in Prague which had played dramatisations of Pratchett's novels in the past. Oh. Uh, Pratchett suggested a benefit auction for the reconstruction and Lad- Ladislav Pelk was the uh, highest donor. And so oh, he was immortalised in there. Yes. What a, great, what a great character to be. Yeah. Somebody with your, with who's your so machine and your flabber. Enthusiastically dangerous. We like that <laughs> in a wizard. I hope that the posthumous professor Goiter was not named after a real person, because if so, I'm sorry for that person for being named Goiter. Hmm, yes. <laughs> but I like this introduction of the idea of wizards taking early death. Yeah, and just having a lunch. <laughs> Which has me debating, do they have some kind of deal with death, or have they just found a pocket universe to fuck off into? I'm guessing the latter. It's yeah. some kind of very stuffy Valhalla, it sounds like, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'd quite happily go there. Oh, yeah, me too, but I'm kind of peckish at the moment. That's probably it. (laughs) Eternity is an endless cheese course. (laughs) Title of my autobiography. Uh, That one sounds a bit Monty Python. I love it. (laughs) We meet Miss McElariat. I'm refusing to try and say her name, so well done. Thank you. I uh, I practised. From a long line of McElariats who keep their maiden name for professional purposes. Of course. I love that she's introed, like, it's almost like this slow motion horror style as his eyes travel up and see all the things he remembers about these terrifying teachers. <laughs> yeah. The cardigan. <laughs> I also love that Pratchett seems to have a sp- very specific issue, and I understand the issue with people putting tissues in their cardigan sleeve. Or handkerchiefs. Because this is not the first time it's come up. Yeah. <laughs> the cheerful fairy was one. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Who hurt you? <laughs> Um, one of our listeners pointed out in the Discord, and I completely agree with them, that the line, I hope you're not funning with me, Mr. Litvig, lives rent-free in my head. Yes, I would never. I never fun. I never would fun. If I did fun, I would not fun with you. Something like that. (laughs) Not dream of it. (laughs) And she brings up this golem, the golem gender issue. Yeah. (laughs) Which is resolved by one of the golems agreeing to go by Gladys and wear something sensible in Gingham. Yeah, yeah. Uh, therefore, diffusing the culture wars argument of twenty years in the future. <laughs> yeah, I I stand by obviously, obviously not. By the way, listeners, I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I stand However, by a golem wearing something in gingham is adorable. It's a pleasant image, and I am a big fan of the name Gladys. Yeah, it's a good. It's a not good enough name. Glad I in the world. No more Gladys. Glad I. I. More Gladyses. <laughs> Is it Greek or... <laughs> no, no, we're not doing suffixes again today. Grail. <laughs> Grail. <laughs> no room for a suffix in that name. No, I love the description. There was nothing spare about him. You couldn't imagine him mm. throwing up after a particularly bad pork pie. Yeah, something came in. Especially because he does suffer from an unfortunate pigeon. <laughs> an unfortunate pigeon habit. No, we've all been there. Um, and um, interesting how his physical forms contrasted with Reacher Giltz as well, who's described as the bear of a man. Yeah. This huge guy and then this very slight. And we, we, uh, 
We don't know exactly what Grail is in this section. We just yeah. know, we, apart from not a vampire. Not a vampire. Yes, a pigeon eater and some kind of hanging on rafters chappy. Yeah. Ooh. Excellent little bit of horror. I love the dialogue between him and Reacher Gilt as well, actually. Just that this is the one person who is not going to be fucked with by this guy. It's like, yeah. I do not trust the semaphore anymore. Yeah. I do not trust the semaphore. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, the absolute lack of trust and the absolute uh, there is no need to respect you. I will do yeah. my job. You will pay me. That's it. Yeah, this I isn't a negotiation. I do not give a fuck about yeah. my patch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've always wanted to say to someone, I do not give a fuck about your eye patch. Yeah, it seems like uh, in real life, there's no way to do that without just being a prick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell you what, Joanna, I'll wear an eye patch for a Halloween costume one day so you can fulfil that dream. Excellent. Marvellous. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And then a quick little location tour. We go to the past post office. The past post office. We do. I love uh, this line. It was a scene made up of a hundred purposeful activities that fused happily into a great anarchy. I love it. You can see it. And I don't know why I can see it so clearly, because I've never been to a huge post office full of bustle, but I can see it as if I have. I, I imagine it. Very, if I feel like it's very Grand Central Station, which is not somewhere I've been, yes. but obviously I've seen a lot. It feels like that. Well, King's Cross almost, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But something about the ornateness of it and mm. the balconies with iron like mm. lace. Yeah. And it's inspiring to Moist. Moist, who, you know, spends a good chunk until he gets onto, gets to Stolat, can't keep still after this happens. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he, he sees what it should be. Yeah. And he starts rebuilding that bustle. <sighs> the hustle, the bustle. Thankfully, only a padded bum roll for Sakurisa. <laughs> Sorry, I've been trying to get a bustle bustle joke in for a while. I, I, I'm really ha- happy. We I'm got glad there. you can relax now. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen, I see the tension melt away. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Trisha. Oh, fuck, we still got half this, an episode. This entire 125 episode run has been for this one. <laughs> 125 episodes, by the way. That's a nice little, not quite round number, but yeah. Congrats to us. Well done, us. Yeah, uh, 12 and a half percent. Hey. <laughs> Right, um, we're an eighth of the way to a thousand. And we're half of the way to Stolat in a little under 20 minutes. Marvellous. Thank you for getting me back on track there. I like the whole wanting their own stamps. And, you know, we've got got a queen. She's very pretty, which I'm assuming is still Queen Kelly. Oh, yeah. From Mort. I love the bit Um, about it being out in the stalks, by the way, if you're in Basque country. (laughs) That does make me chuckle. And yeah, get Kelly on a stamp. She deserves it. She had a... yeah. Out of nightmare of a coronation. I know. We're going to have to look at the timeline to work out how old she's going to be. She might be on a stamp already in the uh, Discworld Emporium. Well, if you think about... So Moist gets his hourglass... Not Moist. Mort gets his hourglass flipped mm-hmm. at the end of... Um, so to speak. At the end of Mort, <laughs> which allows him to live up to the events of Soul Music, where Susan's a teenager. and So I would put Kelly as... If she was of an age with Mort, she's basically old enough to be Susan's parent. So Yeah. In her forties? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. She had had a good reign. She's having a good reign. And um the mended drum is still mended at this point in time. Good. Good to note. I really love the scene where they're all stood outside the drum planning their brawl. They've gone WWF. They have. It's gone full wrestling. <laughs> But with little details like make sure you've got your name tattooed on your various body parts so we all can put you back together properly. This is what Two Flowers thought it was all those years ago. 
His dream has finally come true. I hope he has another little holiday twankmore book at some point. I think we can just assume he does. Yeah. yeah. But let, let us imagine him in there now for this particularly good brawl. We didn't need to see him. We've got other things to think about. But two flower in the corner. Having a writing lovely Writing a postcard, which he'll be able to send. Which he will be able to send. How exciting. Ah, <laughs> uh, headcanons. <laughs> they don't need to be proper. <laughs> so... We liked the brawl planning. There's lots of other we little did. bits we like in this bit. We like all kinds of things. We what do. do you like? Uh, I love the Secret Society of Postmen. Mm. Uh, be the unfranked. So Not so secret. <laughs> Mysticism for tradesmen. Moist has come across it before, obviously. Be you the unfranked man. Mm. Which unfranked is a term, another term for a, a stamp that hasn't been used yet. It hasn't been franked. It hasn't been mm. stamped to show it's gone through the post. Yeah. I did have to look Not that up. Not been marked sure. by the post office yet. Yes. Uh, for once, I didn't have to look up a thing like that because uh, we have a franking machine at work. Oh, um, if you send a lot of ep- uh, a lot of episodes, if you send a lot of letters, you have a little machine that puts uh, little ink stamps on things instead of having to stick them on. Marvellous. Yeah. Um, I love, they say, don the boots and Moist thinks, amazing how you can hear the capital letters. Clang. Which is a pro- shitty thing. <laughs> And then we get our cursed with an extra edge a few pages later. Mm-hmm. And I love, um, you know, they're arguing about whether this means Moist can be postmaster and what this all means yeah. for the post office. And one of them says, you know, veterinary, he's only been around five minutes. Who's he to say who's postmaster? And this perspective from people so entrenched in their own nonsense yeah. that the, the tyrant of the city is, this guy has been around for five minutes. Fuck some veterinary. Gives a fuck he's about not even a postman. Yeah. <laughs> What about you? What did you like? Um, well, I rather liked uh, continued pineapple references. Yeah, my surrealist drag name. I'm starting to feel that not only was uh, did Pratt have a bad experience with a woman with handkerchiefs up her sleeves, but had a bad experience with the pineapple. Uh, <laughs> Whomst among us. <laughs> Whomst among us is not. Uh, Adora Bell is described as pineapple prickly, pineapple prickly, uh, but with maybe peaches underneath. Um yeah, harking back, of course, to the fruit basket of old. Yes. By of old, I mean of last episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then the ride on Boris wasn't so bad once you got past the pineapple. <laughs> so, yeah. What the fuck happened with Pratchett and pineapples? I don't know. I'm starting to think perhaps the, the senior wrangler's experience with his aunt wasn't as abstract as we first thought. Maybe not. Um, and then the, the next one I've got written down is the, ver- the vertigo. The vertigo. The bit where... Uh, Moist is exploring the post office, is trying to get up to the top floor, which he then forgets about handily for the plot uh, after all this happens. Um, and and there's all this description about the, the, the various uh, mail slides and things bursting open and, and tides of letters coming out and then sweeping them all over the place. Um, and then the, the bit where he the stairs disappear from underneath him mm. and... The stairs had gone with great care. Moist brought his feet up until he could feel the edge of the new corridor. Um, and it, it, it's quite long, so I won't read the whole thing. But, well, A, it kind of reminded me of the pyramids bit, uh, the very nice description of when Tepic was about to fall to his death during his oh, yeah, Assassin's true. Guild exam. Um, and B, it just the whole thing gave me, like, really like sympathetic vertigo like the same feeling you get when you watch a video and somebody's like on the top of a building holding the camera over you know yeah that was and that, really well written it gave me that that disorientating feeling that you know mm. i don't know where's up where's down where's left mm-hmm. where's right 
Yeah. And then that moment of, no, don't step forward. And then he does. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no. That was such a well-written scene. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, and just the let uh, the that each step realizing how one of the postmasters died as well, kind of thing. Yeah, and then getting that final uh, explanation of the uh... oh, the head all over. <laughs> yes, I can see all the little chalk outlines. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Uh, Speaking of it, lots of little things. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was a disgusting segue, Francine. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this invention, of, this invention of perforation. It's such a great moment. He's gone to Teamer and Spools. They want to make the the stamps terrible. He's had this idea of with Stanley's pin paper. All these little holes make it tear really neatly. Mm. And he holds it up and shows them very dramatically. And he says, "It ain't got nothing if it ain't got a hole," which is not the first time we've had that joke in a Disquap book. <laughs> That's been reused from soul music, although in a very different context. And and there's a dramatic pause in the writing, and then you get this, three hours went past, foremen were sent for, serious men in overalls turned things on lathes, other men soldered things together, tried them out, changed this, reamed that, and then dismantled a small hand press in a different way. Mm. And you get to this moment where they've, they've figured it out, and Moist sta- holds up the paper and tears off a perfect corner, which is bollocks, stamps have never torn as neatly as that. It's always Well, that one is, even. how many of your stamps were made by several talented craftsman joanna very true and the description of what happens afterwards the windows snapped outwards people breathed again there wasn't a cheer and these weren't meant to cheer and weep at a job well done instead they lit their pipes and nodded to one another i love that well i've talked before about how like cinematic some of these these moments are and this is so consciously movie like like you see this as a montage thing he says that really dramatically it goes to the montage says the music someone rips the sheet off and everyone cheers so the thud of they quietly look that like their pipes and nod each to each other is lands so perfectly yeah. i really love it the gentle release of tension again like we've um, yeah. talked about with some of like granny and nanny's arguments and things yeah uh. it's just done <sighs> it's a great scene um, and then, yeah, just a, a stupid joke bit I like is the statues of the virtues in the library. Patience, which is, you know, considered a virtue. Chastity. Silence is a virtue, but here it's actually one of the virtues with a capital V. Mm. Charity, hope, tub so, bisonomy and fortitude. And who's ever heard of fortitude? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> uh, but bisonomy in the past notes makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> I personally, I am not affected by the hustle and bustle of every day. I can practice bisonomy every day in winter when parsnips are in season. Of course, we wouldn't want to be uh, increasing our, with our <laughs> carbon footprint while we are virtuous. Um, there is some, I think, not uh, like, uh, what's it called? Appendice-y, you know, uh, side matter stuff that goes a little bit more into what those extra ones are. But we never find out exactly, I don't think, do we? No, I think it's funnier that we don't, especially yeah. with the parsnips are a very funny vegetable. Just inherently, as yeah. um, as William DeWard found out. As William DeWard found out. Not as funny as turnips. Blackadder's made turnips the funniest vegetable, but but close. Well, you know, Tony Robinson can't be... Can't be trifled with. Nope. Or turniped with. Or Sorry. turniped with, certainly. Gosh. <laughs> Any other little bits you liked, Francine? Oh, and Stanley is... Um, realising that he really likes stamps. They might be better than pins. And he's thinking about how in, in the past, you know, he'd heard about heard about people 
liking girls and having families and all, uh, things like that. And then, or at some pin meet, someone would just suddenly throw all their pins in the air and run out shouting, Ah, they're just pins! <laughs> Which I just thought was wonderful. <laughs> I love it so much. Especially because obviously I, I've never been at, at Stanley's level and never will, but I am actually quite particular about my pins. Are you? Well, because I sew and I have different pins, I like using for different tasks, and I have a little hand pin holder that has has rainbow pins. I I care about my pins. It's suddenly become very important to me that you never see inside my sewing box. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. No, let, let's do that and we can stay friends. So, um, <laughs> Stanley works in the post office. There's a lot of history and trivia there, isn't there, Francie? Oh, there is. Fuck, are we there already? Yeah. So I, I just there, are, there is loads of cool stuff about the post office and Royal Mail and everything like that that um, I just picked out a couple of bits that are kind of relevant to this, mm-hmm. um, as as so often I do with the podcast. First, I should point out that I think I was going on a, about the post office being privatised in the last episode. It's actually the Royal Mail that was privatised. They're separate. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. Yep. Um, but the Royal Mail was established in 1516, which meant. Really unfun fact. It was fully privatised a year before its 500th birthday. Was it? Yeah. That's disappointing. Disappointing and surely very deliberate because yeah. the idea of it reaching 500 and then being immediately sold off. It, it, I imagine the coalition government wanted it to be uh, a whimper yeah. rather than a bang. Um, but the, the, the general post office uh, mm-hmm. with its was the state postal system in the UK from the 17th century until 1969. And there's a lot of history of all the various the ways the post office and the departments and this and that have been run that I'm not going to go into because it's boring and I couldn't be bothered to understand it. Um, <laughs> I respect that. It, had, uh, it did have a monopoly on all dispatch of items from a specific sender to a specific receiver, which, when it's just letters, is fine. When new communications technology start being introduced starts causing a few problems. Um, And so eventually telecoms ended up with BT after a couple of switches and changes, Mm -hmm. um, which I think must have provided some of the inspiration for the Grand Trunk BT because it was a quite vicious monopoly for quite some time. Um, And it's since this book has been written that some of its, uh, you know, metaphorical pushing people off of Clax Towers has been... yeah. But calm down forcibly. <laughs> Just to be very clear, metaphorical. BT did not push anybody off a tower as far as I know. <laughs> I, I'm saying nothing. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but I mentioned this particularly because A, it's a fun fact, but B, because uh, the GPO was headed by a postmaster general. Was it? It was. Um, and, and the predecessor to the GPO was as well. Uh, but it was a cabinet position in and as far as I can tell, a little bit of trivia, there's only been one female postmaster general. And please do correct me, listeners, if I'm wrong, because I was going through quite a long list and I may just have missed another. Um, but can you guess which year the first female post, first and only, I think, female uh, postmaster general took the role? And ju- just to give you an idea, the role was abolished in 1969. Right. Was it the 20th century? No. 1876. 
1664. Fuck me. All right. I know. She inherited the title from her husband. Uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but she was quite powerful in her own right, it seems like. Um, she and her husband sided with King Charles II uh, ah. during the, you know, that unpleasantness. <laughs> the unpleasantness. <laughs> the unpleasantness, darling. Um and she was postmaster general of England. And here's another bit I couldn't really be bothered to understand. I think there were a few postmaster generals at the time. Like um, for a while, it was of England and Wales. And then there might have been another one in Scotland at the same time. Again, I will link to some resources for anybody who feels like getting into this. So they also I beg had like you a listeners, little... don't, don't explain it to me. I could yeah. learn about it if I chose to. <laughs> we'll put this in with cricket and uh, astrophysics. Mm. So they well, had this little... is a weird cabinet we've got. <laughs> <laughs> little postmaster generalette in the country. <laughs> oh dear. Um but the last postmaster general mm-hmm. before the post was abolished in 1969 uh, was John Stonehouse. And the name might be familiar to you because he was infamous for faking his death. Oh. I I, no, I don't know the name. Um the, he's similar to Moist only in that he was very into his fraud. Uh, <laughs> but he was he um after 1970, uh, Stonehouse started setting up various companies in, in an attempt to secure a regular income, I think. He mm-hmm. was not a very successful politician after this, certainly. Um, and by 1974, this was starting to crumble down around him, and he'd resorted to um, deceptive creative accounting, as my source says. He was aware that he was being investigated, and so he fled. He left his um, clothes off the beach in Miami. Incredible. Um, pretended to have drowned. I don't know how long it lasted. Not very long, I think, and I'm not sure people believed him. Uh, he was later found in Australia with a false passport. What I thought was quite interesting was he spent months rehearsing his new identity of Joseph Markham, who was the deceased husband of a constituent. But apparently he really enjoyed rehearsing. He ran off with his mistress, by the way. Yeah. Um, and he really enjoyed rehearsing his character because he was meant to be this quiet, honest man. And he started hating his real personality of Stonehouse. And it's all a little bit odd. And that sounds like a man who might have needed medication. Yeah, anyway, he went to prison. Psychological support. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not surprised. Yeah, um, he did get like... The, some of this is from a psychological report, so yeah. I, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope he got some medication. Uh, he's also alleged to have been a spy for Czechoslovakia. Oh, as you do. And it looks like Margaret Thatcher decided to keep that quiet when it turned out they didn't have enough evidence to indict him. Right. Um, and so they didn't want that becoming a thing if it wasn't going to lead to anything. Um, yeah. But yeah, interesting guy. I'll uh, I'll link to an article about him. A um, couple of other very small bits. Um, the first stamps, of course. Yeah. And um, the hand-struck stamps have been a thing since 1680, but the uh, the penny black as Everyone in Britain, but probably not abroad, because why would you? Uh, well, no, uh, was 1840, and mm-hmm. it was the first adhesive stamp. Wow. Uh, yep. <laughs> but it, it basically, it standardised the price yeah. for sending letters. Before then, it was all done on weight and dis- distance and was very cumbersome to calculate and afford a lot of the time. And it was the recipient who used to have to pay as well. Ah, oh, so you'd have to pay when you got a letter. Yeah, which, I mean, that must have been like, there must have been some instances of people just pranking or like trying sending. to screw over other people like how people did it with pizzas before yeah paying online like, became a thing yeah like you'd have a pizza sent to someone but then they'd have to pay the cash yeah um anyway sorry <laughs> now people just send each other bowls of peas in weatherspoons exactly um the 
other little bit. I love stories about uh, letters being sent a long time mm-hmm. after, or delivered a long time after they were sent. Obviously, there's a lot of those in this book, and there's a lot of stories about that in real life as well. There's yeah. all sorts of these. Um, there's one from this year that I particularly liked, and I came across randomly before we started this, so I bookmarked it. A letter lost in 1916, delivered in London more than 100 years later. Amazing. Stand first. Royal Mail uncertain what happened to delay letter from Bath, <laughs> which arrived in Crystal Palace in 2021. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was addressed to Katie Marsh, who was married to the stamp dealer Oswald Marsh um, and was sent by her friend Christabel Menel, who was uh, holidaying in Bath. Um And it begins, my dear Katie, will you lend me your aid? I'm feeling quite ashamed of myself after saying what I did at the circle. And nobody knows what happens in this. Yeah, yeah. So love this stuff. But anyway, it's it's rich people gossip. Fantastic. Love it. Um, Another little special mention along these lines. I know we haven't really gone into it in the podcast, uh, Mm -hmm. in the the book so far, but um, whatever. I really love the idea of um, all the, the instances where very vague addresses get put on a post Yes. And uh, it ends up in the right place anyway. And then British uh, and Irish post uh, postmen are very good at this, like have a reputation for it. Yeah. Um, and called address detectives, some of them. I don't know if that's something that's survived the cuts. But um, <laughs> I there are, again, myriad examples of this. I just picked one I particularly liked. Um, lives across from the spa. Bizarrely labelled, letter finds its way to a UK address. The full description on the envelope reads, Lives across the road from the spa. His ma and da used to own it. His mother was Mary and da Joseph. Moved to Waterfoot after he got married. Plays guitar and used to run discos in the parochial hall and the hotel in the 80s. Friends with the fella who runs the butchers in Waterfoot too. (laughs) Excellent. And that got to its its intended recipient. It did and it was so specific and so vague. I thought it was a wonderful example of both. And I'm sorry, I've got one more anecdote as well. No, no. This is more than I thought. Uh, so intelligent letter sorting machines is an yeah. interesting, very given value of the word, interesting subject. And in their current-ish iteration, I mean, obviously the tech's improved. They came in the mid-80s and early 90s. So I feel like Fractal probably had a little bit of inspiration here. But an earlier iteration, the Postmaster General Ernest Marples went to Norwich in uh, 1959 to officially launch the postcode experiment in front of national media. And on the day, uh, Norwich's head postmaster, John Fryer, learnt that one of the conveyor belts linking their smart post sorting machine had broken. Uh, <laughs> and this was the thing that was going to sort all the new postcode stuff and it's going to make everything very smart and quick and this, that and the other. But it's too it was too late to call off the demonstration. So they they managed to pull off kind of an illusion. Uh, there was time to run 100 letters through the keyboard and dot print unit and take them out of the machine. For the demonstration, the front conveyor was operating normally. So they were printed, went into the... Uh, the smart sorting machine. And at this point, two postmen, cunningly positioned behind the machine, removed these and replaced them with pre-dotted letters for the working sorter. The audience had no idea that the letters going into the destination boxes were not the same as the ones they'd witnessed starting the process. Uh, the machine's quietness was noted and put down to it being so cutting edge. <laughs> How mechanical Turk can you get? <laughs> That's a moist one lip fig move. There was Absolutely one. is. <laughs> If only it had the opportunity instead of being given a universe-breaking organ. (laughs) (laughs) 
as the actress said to the bishop. <laughs> no, terrible. Sorry. Um, yeah. And then to to, to segue properly, because I've got, I've got a, a, one nice little segue thing. The idea of moving the mail, the phrase mm-hmm. keep moving the mail came up a few times. So that was reading through various forums and news stories and Reddit posts about about the post office. And it really has the show must go on vibes. I can't find any like yeah. official stuff anywhere. A lot of posties um, seem to use that. Yeah, the term move the mail, keep moving the mail, this or the other. Uh, when when they're on strike, there's a lot of quotes that say, look, we want to be there moving the mail. But yeah, um, and I love it. There's just some kind of little, yeah, little magic there. Yeah, I love that. I mean, this book is this book is magical and not mm. just because it's a really good fucking book. <laughs> So I talked a little bit last week about this book as a, not a rehash, a follow-up. Uh, this book kind of has the truth as a bit of its foundation. Mm. And none of this is to say, like, this is better than the truth. I just really, I'm really fascinated in how Ank Morport grows between these two books. Yeah, The truth kind of, so this this book is considered part of the Ank Morport, the Industrial Revolution arc. Mm-hmm stuff starts happening. And I think the truth is really what begins that. Mm. It's uh, what happens when thing happens, as, as we've said. But, but with in machinery. The, Sorry. <laughs> but with machinery and kind of without magic, mm. it's not about the magic. It's not soul music and it's come from somewhere else. It's not moving pictures ah. and giant things coming through screens. It's stuff working. Yeah, yeah. Because the truth kind of begins that, it, it, it's a little bit of almost a refresh. It comes at that 25th book point, which is really great. But in doing so, the book shied quite far away from magic, almost just to make a joke out of it. You had that running joke about there's nothing mystical going on in this shed, mm. uh, because we all remember what happened to Mr. Hong's Three Jolly Luck Takeaway Fish Bar in Dagon Street. Yep. Obviously, it doesn't entirely shy, shy away from magic. You have the, the eels and, and Otto, and you have the ominous press, but it is... It's it's far away from it, especially compared to other Rank Morport books. Mm. Whereas Going Postal has the confidence to embrace this this fabric of magic in Discworld while telling a, a new shape of story in Rank Morpork. You know, mm. there is no trying to ask Festinari plot. There is barely any watch in it. They're referenced because obviously they're there. They're part of the fabric, but they're not characters. Yeah. Unlike The Truth, which is not a watch book, is set in modern Ankh Morpork, but then uses the veterinary plot and has the watch there as almost an unofficial mm. watch book. Yeah. But in, in doing that, in going postal, embracing that fabric and telling this new story, it highlights the absolutely human things that are happening, this idea of chasing efficiency, destroying the post office, the financial crimes, the way the easy way Moist makes people believe in him, except it's not easy because he is actually doing all of this shit. Mm. He just thinks of it as a con. But so you have these ideas running through it, and it starts using magic in these really clever ways. You have this ephemeral way that guilt thinks about money in the ephemeral way that both mm. guilt and Moist kind of play with with the world, with people. When guilt says money's not a thing, it's not even a process, it's a shared it's a shared dream. It's a delusion. And so there's all this this magic just there in the book and it's not disagreed with. It's just as much of a fabric of it as anything else. You have Grope being so certain about the prophecy, especially when the hat comes on and it's kind of treated as silly, but then the mystical writing comes and, yeah. and Moist starts to believe. And the, the letters are very frank about it. Yes, we are mystical letters talking to you, but look, you're not prophecy. Anyone will do. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah, there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and then you have that gap 
you know, that happens. And then he wakes up the next morning and you have this off screen, as it were, a bit where yeah. he gets caught up in it and makes plans and hires Spaceman. Yeah. Which, uh, something he says in that, by the way, that, that Mr. Pump quotes back to him the next day is about Angel being a, a, a word for messenger, which mm. it does, it comes from Angelos from ancient Greek, which means messenger. But what I was found interesting is that the word for angel in Hebrew also has the same etymology. That's messenger as well. Oh, nice. Oh, I lovely. just really love that as a detail. The, the bit about moist kind of going off on this, uh, like off screen. Everything's yeah. going to happen now thing as well. I feel is such a Pratchett putting that into like the the character, especially the competent men that he loves to write. This just the scene where they're like, right, now we're doing this, that and the other. This, this, you do this, you do that. We've had it with Vimes to, you know, yeah. on very different subjects. We've had it with William DeWord, obviously. Um, and yeah, Moy seems to be the really best at this. Just <laughs> but there's something about not seeing it, seeing mm. it in the morning. It's something about seeing it in the cold light mm. of day. Yeah, yeah. This, oh God, the hangover of it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. And you get, uh, Moise thinks about about not doing magic, which is this whole key thing that has run through the Discworld. Mm. You know, the magic would present its bill, which was somehow more than you can afford. Just as magic stays a really inherent part of the book, everyone is willing to reject it on every level, because when they tried magic, they got his head all over the floor. (laughs) <laughs> all over the wall, Joanna. Very different. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I'm assuming some was on the floor. Oh, no, you're quite based right. on gravity. Yeah, yes. And you get these this great stuff, like the absolute silliness with the wizards, which I think is a very confident thing to have that in there, hmm. along with this incredible story being told, is moments like a bucket of clockwork pastry lobsters and a box set of novelty glass eyes. Oh. I cannot stop thinking about <laughs> clockwork pastry lobsters. We should probably also mention the very far callback with the stuffed crocodile and the yes uh, skull with the candle, shouldn't we? That goes right back to the beginning. That is a well-established fact. <laughs> <laughs> the established crocodile. I thought as well, um, Adora Bell's little mention of mysticism, whether I uh, moist is like, oh, so they give him a bit of extra clay for the, for the tongue. It's like, she mm. gave him a look. It's a bit more mystical than that, she said solemnly. <laughs> Which again, like, we don't need to explain the magic. It's just, it's more but magical than that. Don't worry about it. There's also a sense of, of she's very confident about it. She doesn't fucking know. Of course she fucking doesn't no. know. <laughs> but she very confidently doesn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have this specific magic inherent in the letters, in the power mm. of letters. And this is such a Pratchett thing, this power of stories, belief all coming together. Mr. Pump calls the post office a tomb of unheard words. And you could hear that like thudding in his clay voice when he when it's written down. Um, Moist explains about the letters, their unfinished stories, every undelivered message is a piece of space-time that lacks another end, a bundle of effort and emotion floating freely, which is such a beautiful oh. idea. It's like, oh God, it's like it's like L space if they didn't have librarians sorting stuff out, isn't it? It's like yeah, all of the and- Time distorting. Um, Professor Pelk uh, refers to the library as a Gervaisa, a tomb of living words, which uh, I think is a reference to Janisa. Uh, and I'm probably not saying that right. It's a Hebrew word. Um, it literally means hiding place, but it's it's a repository for these like time worn sacred manuscripts and ritual objects because they didn't want to just throw away um, things that had holy words written on them. Um, also, like when he said it's in Clad. Yeah, the, the, ah. these, there are these specific places. I'll link to a, a, a Britannica oh, cool. article that's got a lot more context for that. Oh, nice. And there's also just 
there's a lot of fun other little bits that kind of reference the truth specifically in this that mm. um mm. you know harry king is is present in the background i feel like harry king's the real start to the ankh-morpork industrial revolution yeah. like that f- I, I talked about it in the truth i like a fantasy book that answers the question where does the shit go yeah yeah because so that's we've, like we've a- got a couple of harry king coded people running the coaches as well don't we Just yeah the, the, the two the kind of flavor. outdoor men who will happily deal with a Yes. Outward grifter, yeah, <laughs> and 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 they all speaks as they find and call spades spades when necessary and brew very thick cups of tea. Yeah, and then hit one over the head with the spade when when necessary. Things go south. Yeah, and obviously like Sacharis being here, the newspaper just mm. being a part of like Moorpork now compared to when it was this shiny new thing. Yeah, and so now like we saw the power of the press in Monstrous Regiment, but it was very like defamiliarised. We were seeing it from the point of view of people who didn't know what newspapers yeah. are. Whereas for here, we're seeing it from the point of view of people who are used to a newspaper, which was brand fucking new like 15 books ago. Also, like, there are multiple references to the prawn market figures from Genua. Mm. And that was a thing in The Truth. Vesinari has a conversation with Ridk. I'm pretty sure it's The Truth and ah. I didn't have time to go check. But Ves because I think this is one of the reasons, you know, Rid Cully says, yeah, he had this weird conversation with me about sending prawns by semaphore. Yeah. And and Vestinari is talking about knowing how much a pint of prawns would cost in Genua the next day. Oh, and that of was course. the importance yes, of, yes. of the semaphore. That is that. Oh. Uh, so I like that now the prawn market figures have, have come up multiple times in this book. Look, they're very important. <laughs> Vestinari got what he wanted. Most of the time, you can find out the cost of a pint of prawns in Genua. And I think possibly earlier than that, we've also been worried about the maybe in Nightwatch, the carts full of seafood going. Yeah, no, we, we've considered the price of prawns before, <laughs> <laughs> and not a call back to the truth. No, but the call price back of to, a pint of prawn. <laughs> sorry, not a call back to the truth, but call back to monstrous regiment. Um, Vetinari asks Moist if he's aware of the etymology of sticking up your jumper because there's a lively debate going on about it in the Times. Oh. And stick it up your jumper is a, is a thing in Monstrous Regiment. And uh, at one point, one of them says it, and I'm pretty sure William DeWord is present. And uh, Blouse explains, yes, no, which I believe was named after. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I like to think that's just stuck in... Stuck into his mind, and now he's, he's they're they're arguing about it in the letters pages of the Times. That's definitely what's happened. I love that. Then, obviously, I, I already mentioned we have Hobson's livery stable that first cropped up in the Truth as well, and it's just uh, he in the Truth he built out Ankh-Morpork a lot more. Mm. He he used the same story he told before to build a lot more of the city. Yeah, this book then he gets to it. yeah, this book gets to play in it. Yeah, yeah, and I love that so much, and I love how magical it gets to become again. It's almost like, yeah. oh, maybe if it's that, it shouldn't be too magical. No, no, fuck it, it's all in there. Everything's in there. Clockwork, pastry, lobsters up the wazoo. I was going to say, I really like the way that you in, in this bit have kind of bundled in some real world magic, like the delusion of money, with all the rest of the magics, and how you know, because in this book they are bundled in together. Yeah. Except in this book, if you get delusion without something enough, it comes true. And it, the, yep, the, the bits of that in the real world, though, we are all, you know, money is that slightly weird ephemeral thing that we've all agreed agreed on. Well, it is. It, yeah. it absolutely is. I mean, this is why the more I learn about economics, the crosser I get about economics, just because the point is that it's nothing. Yeah, it's, it's all nothing. <laughs> 
listeners, don't explain economics to us. That's in the box with the cricket and postmasters. And, uh, I think it's in a slightly separate box, which is I we get probably it. should I try and yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think that's part of what makes this such a wonderful book. It builds on everything that's come before, but it particularly builds on on a favourite and. It's really wonderful to see the confidence almost come back in magic. Mm. It's not mm. the magic of the wizards. It's not the magic of the witches. It is the magic of the city. And it's yeah, the the belief, the the belief making things real in this, but in this, but it's happening in, in a very literal way. way. Yeah, yeah, the structural way, making it's money. the post office happen. Everybody the fucking believes happen. it, and they want to join in with the fun. That's what he said, isn't it? They want to join in with yeah. the fun, so they go and buy the stamps, and they're making it real. Exactly. Yeah. And Moist as well. Like, he doesn't believe in himself. He thinks he's conning everyone, but he's yeah. conning everyone by just doing the yeah. fucking thing. So, of like, course, ah, they they'll never know him. I'm a con man if I just do what I'm Don't meant to. Con them. <laughs> anyway, um, I got unhinged there, and I'm not sure any of it made sense. Francine, have you got an obscure reference finial for me? Yeah, speaking of prawns, uh, no. <laughs> speaking of semaphore and prawn markets, kind of, it sent me yeah. off on this because, and I think now you've said it, I was like, ah, prawn markets, that sounds familiar, which is what sent me down this, but it was from, I've done this before, it was from another Discworld book, but it's fine because I found an actual good one. Um, cool. <laughs> basically, I was like, there have got to have been a couple of times where people used um, the semaphores or telegraphs or something in the same way that the the criminal the does in this movie, one yeah. pretends it's broken runs ahead gets the oh yeah that one corners the prawn market yeah uh, <laughs> and there've been a couple of them that don't quite fit but fit enough that I like it in 1814 the great stock exchange fraud was and this one came from a news story in 2018 so it stayed very relevant weirdly fake news that napoleon had died is cited in a new analysis aimed at helping commodity bond and forex tra traders to stop fraud an industry body said on friday in 1814, Charles de Beringer disguised himself as a Bourbon officer and appeared in Dover to announce that Napoleon had been killed by the Prussians. He sent a semaphore telegraph to the Admiralty in London, knowing it would find its way into the press. The price of British government bonds rose on the news, prompting de Beringer and co-conspirators to sell gilts they'd already bought. Gilts, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, but that was good, I thought. Yeah. Um, and then the other little one was a bit more, I wasn't sure if to put this in next week when we're going to be talking a bit more about like the um, the technology and the yeah. plaques and all that stuff, but I thought it fit here. Um, so this is an 1834 cyber attack, basically, mm -hmm. um, or hacking, whatever. Um, so in France, as I think we have mentioned before, had its own national semaphore yeah. network uh, in the late 1700s so much earlier than a lot of people and it was um it can it was towers quite a long way apart so about 10 kilometers apart rotating arms they could signal and it was only for government business this this wasn't like the grand trunk type thing mm -hmm. however francois and joseph blanc uh two bankers working on the bordeaux stock exchange hired a colleague in paris uh, to keep watch on the Paris Stock Exchange and pass information on the most significant trends to a telegraph operator in Tours on the line that transmitted data to Bordeaux. And they found a way to nest their messages inside the authorised messages using the symbols used to indicate transmission errors. 
And we've talked a little bit here about them putting their own personal messages inside the messages somehow yeah. on the thing. Eventually, they did get caught, but they made quite a lot of money in the meantime, I think. But yeah, just knowing that by knowing all the stock market stuff. Two years they, they managed. Here we go then. Yeah. Love that. However, the authorities realised there were no actual laws that prohibited the injection of private messages into the optical telegraph network, so they didn't get jailed. Uh, Amazing. Because <laughs> Vetinari wasn't in charge. I feel like when point when this was pointed out to Vetinari, he'd be gone, he'd be going, well, there's uh, no law prohibiting me specifically from dropping you into the scorpion pit. So, yeah, unlucky. <laughs> Sometimes it's handy to have a tyrant. No, let's not drop people. The True Shall Make You Fret does not advocate dropping most people into scorpion pits. Yes. <laughs> However. However. Anyway. Um, I think that's, that's got nothing to do with the price of prawns, so I'm gonna make I... this a saying somehow. Yeah, no, that's fair. What's that got to do with the price of prawns? I think that's everything that we could possibly say about part two of Going Postal. It's not true at all. But uh, Francine's hungry and so am I. We will be back with you next week for the final part of Going Postal, which uh, begins in Chapter 10 and goes right to the end of it. That sounded more like a threat than a promise, and I'm (laughs) living for that vibe. (laughs) We are coming back whether you like it or not. What's going to happen with the fire, Joanna? I don't, I know. Um, Things are going to be on fire. Uh, Anyway, right, sorry. Um, until next week, dear listener, uh, if you like this episode, please like do the rate and review thing. It helps other people find us because of the cursed algorithms that cursed. is cursed with multiple ads. And uh, if we are reviewed, it helps us. <laughs> review there it. There we go. I got that right at the end. <laughs> also, you can follow us on Instagram at the True Show Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, on Blue Sky at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook at the True Show Make You Fret. Join our subreddit community r slash ttsmyf. Email us your thoughts, queries, castles, snacks, and prawn prices. The True Show Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. If you want to support this bollocks financially, don't send us prawns. Go to patreon.com forward slash the True Show Make You Fret, where you can exchange your hard earned pennies for all sorts of bonus nonsense. You can also join our Discord, link down below. And until next time, dear listener, don't let us detain you. I mean, just put it, putting things down so I can use both hands to podcast with. <laughs> 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 <laughs>